This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage process into the 21st century with a fast, easy, and completely online process. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com slash fool. This is Molly Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I am joined by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool, and he is also the advisor on Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement newsletter. Hi, bro. Hello, Allison. So, bro, last week you introduced us to five of the greatest investors of all time, and today, bro introduces us to five more investors you should know. Actually, seven. Even more people than wow. you should know. Wow. Yeah. You- this is so exciting. You're getting more for your money. We'll also answer your question about how much money you should hand over to a new financial advisor. And in a role reversal, Rick and Bro get advice from you. All that and more in today's episode, The Goats of Investing Part 2, Revenge of the Goat. <laughs> it's a working title. This is Answers Answers, and today's question comes from Mike Z. He writes, Hi there. I've been in the market for a financial advisor, and I think I finally found a good one. My question is, now that I have found this advisor, do I need to diversify away from him slash her? Are you not sure whether she's a him or a her? (laughs) I thought about that too. That's fine. That's fine. Should I hedge my bets and leave a chunk of change in an index fund, leave my 401k untouched, or give all of my funds to the advisor? Thanks. Well, Mike, congratulations on finding a good financial advisor, and I think your instincts are also good, and that is, you don't want to put all your future financial well-being in the hands of one person. So, it is good to diversify away from the advisor, and the first person to diversify away to is yourself, and that is becoming an educated investor, an educated consumer of financial services and advice, and then maybe keeping some of that money in your 401k. You might have to, by the way, because some advisors Depending on the way they are paid, they actually can't manage the 401k. They can't provide any advice on it. So it's a good idea to learn enough so that you can manage it on your own, anyhow. Um, I've talked about in previous episodes how even if you're an individual stock picker, it makes sense to own some index funds just to hedge against the possibility that maybe your picks won't work out. I read a discussion board post uh, not too long ago about a guy who said he's been picking his own individual stocks, he's been picking his own mutual funds. And then he looked at his wife's 403b, which had a target retirement fund in it. And it turns out that actually that has outperformed all his stock picking and fund picking, which made him rather sad. But actually, I think that just showed how smart he was by having some of his other assets in a target retirement fund. So if you don't want to even make the decisions on your own in your 401k or elsewhere, a target retirement fund is a good way to have a good solid investment a hedge that this financial advisor won't be doing a good job for you. I'll also add that a few years ago, one of the things I did very briefly here at The Motley Fool was we offered a service by which we would analyze the accounts that were managed by professional advisors for our members. And most of them were pretty good, but some of them, the advisors were making extreme calls. Because this was a few years ago, it was only a couple of years after the Great Recession, and some people took continued very bearish stances in their portfolios. It was all strongly in cash. Or they felt that inflation was going to go crazy and it was a lot of real assets and gold. That did not work out very well. So, I would say the more your advisor is is recommending sort of an extreme stance or making a big market call, the more you should have some of your other assets invested in some other way. If I had a financial advisor and I just wanted to go get like a second opinion from someone else, is that something that I could 
do easily to just be like, here, here's 500 bucks. Give me a second opinion on if my guy or woman is doing well. That's a great question. And you can do that. There are some financial planners who will work on an hourly or project basis. You can find them through the Garrett Planning Network or also through NAPFA. And it's worth it to pay that extra $500 or so. Maybe it might be a little bit more, but to get that second opinion on how your other advisor is managing your money. No offense, obviously. No offense. Not at all. A big thanks to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans for sponsoring today's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Fast, powerful, and completely online, Rocket Mortgage has taken all of the complicated, time-consuming parts of applying for a mortgage out of the equation. With Rocket Mortgage, you can easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button, helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. So, if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states and ML. LS Consumer Access org number thirty thirty. Last week, Bro introduced us to five of the greatest investors of all time. Some you probably knew, like Warren Buffett and John Templeton, and some I definitely did not know, like James Simons, yep. the quant king. Yep. Today, Bro introduces us to even more investors you should know in today's episode of Goats of Investing. Part two, the quickening on patrol. <laughs> Take Manhattan. <laughs> okay, so who is the first investor you're going to introduce me to today? Well, uh, we're gonna introduce. I'm gonna introduce you to four main investors and then a few honorable mentions. And I'll just say right off the bat, this was a tough, tough project. Well, what was your what was your original intent with this project? Well, I wanted to, I wanted to see could you really identify the greatest investors of all time, and it was difficult because. As I mentioned in the previous episode, it's actually kind of difficult to pin the actual performance, depending on whether someone's running a publicly managed mutual fund or a hedge fund or running their own personal money, which a lot of these hedge fund folks do after a while. Um, and also, they invest in different ways. So some people make a lot of money in the bond market and are exceptional bond investors, but their total returns won't compare to someone who invests in maybe stocks. So it was difficult, but I have to say, I found it very enjoyable. I have identified four people that while I'll highlight in greater detail, like I did in the last episode, and then the three honorable mentions. And the first one is Joel Greenblatt. Have you ever heard of Joel Greenblatt? No. No. So he grew up in New York and got his BS and his MBA from Wharton, and he started a hedge fund in 1985 called Gotham Asset Management. Mostly, by the way, with money from uh, Michael Milken. (laughs) From Batman. And Michael Milken, the junk bond king who eventually went to jail for a couple of years. Um, and the, it started in 1985, and depending on the, resource, the source you consult, he earned anywhere from 30 to 40 percent a year. Um, so that's a lot of money. He eventually stepped aside. He was a big disciple of Warren Buffett's and was taking extremely concentrated bets, at some points only owning five to eight stocks. But he had such strong conviction about them, and he was right, it generally worked out pretty well. Um, he eventually started teaching, and he continues to teach a class at Columbia. Um, and a lot of Motley Fool folks will know him for two books that he wrote. One is You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, which advocated investing in so called special situations like spin offs oh, or companies coming yeah. out of okay. bankruptcy. So, yeah. whenever we do a survey among the Motley Fool analyst group, like some of our favorite investing books, that's there. And the other book is, was called The Little Book That Beats the Market, and it featured what he called his magic formula 
for investing. Sounds too good to be true. Well, it, it's very interesting, actually, and it's it's rather simple. He basically it's designed to identify, in his words, above average companies, but only when they are available at below average prices. Hmm. To determine the quality, looks at return on invested capital. In other words, when the company is buying whatever it does with its capital, whether it's expanding, buying a an acquisition, building a factory, does it get a good return on that? And then at valuation, is looking at the earnings yield, which is essentially the inverse of the price to earnings ratio. His formula was basically get the 30 stocks that rank highest on this and rebalance it once a year. When you back test it, it does very well compared to the S and P 500, mm. and you can actually get the magic formula at www.magicformulainvesting.com. Free registration, and then it'll even list the stocks for you. Um, so it's 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 a rather interesting way to look at it. Even if you are not going to follow that, it's a good way to highlight companies that generally have are good quality companies, but are trading at relatively low valuations. Um, over the last few years, he's launched some mutual funds, traditional mm. mutual funds. However, you have to have about $250,000 to get in, and they uh, charge over 2% a year. So they actually have not been doing so well over the last few years, but like a lot of value-oriented funds, they haven't been doing well. This is actually a different strategy where he is buying cheap stocks and shorting very expensive stocks. Part of why that hasn't worked out is because it's been sort of a growth-oriented market over the last few years. But I think over the long term, he'll probably do okay. The expenses are still, though, pretty high. So, a couple of quotes from our good friend Joel Greenblatt. One is, companies that achieve a high return on capital are likely to have a special advantage of some kind. That special advantage keeps competitors from destroying the ability to earn above average profits. So, that's why he looks at that. Um, and another good quote from him was, you have to screw up a bunch and learn from it. And I point that out because just about every one of these great investors that I have studied emphasize that there is a lot of value in making mistakes, mm. as long as you learn from them. Fun fact. So, we all, most of us, I assume, are familiar with Michael Lewis's The Big Short mm -hmm. or the movie. Uh, and in that was profiled Michael Burry, who was a doctor who became a hedge fund manager. Um, he was starting to write on these sort of investing blogs, and he decided that he was going to start his own hedge fund. Joel Greenblatt was one of the first people to put money into his fund, gave him a million dollars to run it. He was also one of the people who, if you've read the book or watched the movie, started to doubt Michael Burry a little bit and want his money back. And in Michael Lewis's book, Joel Greenblatt is kind of portrayed as a, somewhat of a villain to a certain degree, mm. although Joel Greenblatt would disagree with that characteristic, characterization, <laughs> yes. of course. Yeah. Um, and while researching this, um, I found out that one of the first articles that I could find on Michael Burry was written by Zeke Ashton for The Motley Fool. Oh. Back in 2003, I'm sure Rick remembers Zeke because he then left the fool to manage money. But so Motley Fool, very early in on Michael Burry, who was not who we were just talking about. But I see where we got there. That's I see, true. I see. <laughs> I see we took we a got bus. There. We got off. We changed. We got on another bus. Right. Came back around. All right. Cool. That little right. book that meets the market. It yeah. really is a little book. It is. It is very little it's book. It's very physically tiny and tiny, easy to read. It's all about lemonade stands, as I recall. Oh, yes, I forgot about that part. Yeah. Hmm. Very easy book to read. All right, let's move on to the next investor. And that is Ray Dalio, who is the founder of Bridgewater Associates, which is the largest hedge fund in the world and hedge fund firm in the world, which manages two funds that are the biggest hedge funds in the world. Um, the main one is the Pure Alpha Fund, which has made money more than any other hedge fund ever. 
So growing up, his uh, Ray's father was a jazz musician and played in in Manhattan. Oh, Ray, as a young lad, was a caddy, and he would hear all the golfers talk about investing. So he made his first investment when he was twelve. Wow! He bought Northeastern Airlines. It was soon take over, so he tripled his money. He was hooked. Yeah. By the time he went to college, he already had a portfolio of several thousand dollars. Um, he went to Long Island University, then to Harvard Business School. At the age of 26, he started Bridgewater in 1975 in his two-room apartment. Wow, um, really? He was trading currencies, commodities, and things like that, but he was advising clients on demand risk. One of his first clients was McDonald's, because they were worried about rising chicken prices, because they were about to launch something called the McNugget. <gasps> oh. Yes, so he helped them uh, find a way to hedge out that risk. Um, and then since then, it's become basically a macro fund, making bets on the economy, different um, different aspects of what they see happening. For example, they were well positioned before they saw the housing boom coming and made some money off of that. At least the Pure Alpha Fund. There's the all, they have also have something called the All Weather Fund, which is more widely diversified and designed to do well in any sort of environment. Um, Couple. He also started off writing this thing called the Daily Observations, um, which apparently is read by heads of state and central bankers all over the world. But you can only get it if you are a client of one of the hedge funds. Uh, People would start, of course, would forward it on and stuff like that. And back in 2009, they tried to create some sort of thing on their website that would prevent you from being able to forward it. I don't know if that was successful or not. so here are a couple of quotes from him, and it'll get into the sort of fun, quirky facts about this guy. So one quote is, there is a giant untapped potential in disagreement, especially if the disagreement is between two or more thoughtful people. Hmm. And the other one is, maintain, quote unquote, baseball cards or believability matrices for your people. Imagine if you had a baseball card that showed all the performance stats. You could see who did well, who did poorly, and you could call on the right people at the right time in a very transparent way. This is basically how he runs his company. It's sort of why I'm interested in this guy in general. They have something what they call radical and extreme transparency. All meetings are videotaped. Oh, that's right. I've heard of this. Yes. And anyone can watch them. Now, I should say, internally, it's extreme transparency. Externally, it's very hard to see what's going on. I think it's all all meetings of like three or four or more people. Right. And it has 1,500 people, and they all work at a campus in Connecticut. and everyone is encouraged to read his document called Principles, and it lays out 210 principles of basically of life and management. Um, one of the core tenets is pain plus reflection equals progress. People are very encouraged to be very honest with each other about how they're perform- how they're doing. And one of them, <laughs> one of the core principles is never say anything about a person you wouldn't say to them directly, and don't try people without accusing them to their face. Here's another great quote. If you talk behind people's back, pack backs at Bridgewater, you are called a slimy weasel. Ah. And this came into the news, I think, within the last year or so when um, Ray Dalio's co CEO and co chief investment officer, Dalio, accused him of talking behind his back. So the employees were able to vote on whether the co CEO, which is a guy by the last name of Jensen, had integrity. What? And then Jensen was also then was allowed to basically put Dal- Dalio's integrity up to a vote on whether he was really going to follow through on the succession plans that they had. Now, of course, this sounds extreme to us, but 
both of them said it's being blown out of proportion, and this is just the way we work. Huh. And this is why we're so successful. So I thought it was very interesting. Anyway, Wait, how did the vote turn out? Uh, I think what they ultimately decided was that Jensen was doing these two roles of co-CEO and co-CIO, and he just went to the CIO role, which I guess was sort of like a demotion of some kind. Anyways, you can read... But so, but so the, everyone in the company voted, and they're like, oh, I don't know if he has as much integrity, and so he got demoted to CIO? I, I think so. Again, from the outside, right. we're not always sure what's going on there. Wow. But definitely Jensen's role changed. Anyways, you can read, if you can go to www.principles.com, you could read... The 210 principles. They own principles.com? Yeah, they own principles.com. Wow. As well as uh, www.economicprinciples.org, which is this fascinating video that Dalio did about how the economy works. I think I've seen that video. You may have. It's a super good He's video. He's an interesting guy. He practices transcendental meditation. He will pay for any employees who want to learn how to do it. Their complex out in Westport, Connecticut is on a lake, and it's very peaceful, I guess. Everyone's confronting everyone all <laughs> the time. Each other. You have they walk around with iPads when you could push up. You basically put a button and indicate how what your pain index is and whether you're. Yeah, it's a very interesting play. Huh. Okay. Yeah. All right. Who is the next investor? The next investor is someone likely everyone has heard of, and that is George Soros. Um, and I won't get too much into his portfolio so much because he he invests in a way that most of us can't do. But he, I think he's a fascinating character and. I also wanted to highlight him because he arguably does have one of the best investment performance records of all time. Plus, we've all heard of him, but we probably don't know a whole lot about him. So basically, he was born in Hungary in 1930. His father was taken prisoner during World War yeah, I. Yeah, not a great time to be born in Hungary. No, well, and especially because he was Jewish. Yeah, um, wow. They had last. He actually was born with the last name of Schwartz. Oh. It was changed to Soros partially because the um, it's translated successor in Hungarian. Plus, it's a palindrome, which is, I guess pleased his father to okay. some degree. Uh, eventually, he had to go into hiding during World War II and then um, took on another identity as another Hungarian's grandson to escape from being deported. Wow. He eventually did escape. Uh, he left Hungary in 1947, went to England, London School of Economics, worked his way through by being um, a waiter and a railroad porter, and he got he had some charity from the Quakers. Then he eventually makes it to America. Um, and starts working for brokerages, but then opens up his own fund, which he eventually renamed named the Quantum Fund after Heisenberg's principle of quantum mechanics. Those of the Breaking Bad fans. I was going to say, I know that from Breaking Bad. <laughs> I, I know that from Breaking Bad. Um, so he became he's he's invested in just about everything at some point over the last many decades. He became famous mostly for currency trading, and in 1992 he became known as the man who broke the Bank of England because he shorted um, the pound. In light of what's happened in Brexit, it's kind of an interesting story that I won't get into. But basically, there was an, a preliminary, basically a preliminary European currency exchange system to build up to the eventual creation of the euro. Um, but the but he basically helped to drive the pound down to where they had to leave the exchange. He made a billion dollars. Ended up costing the taxpayers of the UK about three to four billion dollars. Wow. Um, he did it again. He did also some currency betting against in, uh, the bot in Thailand in '97, and then also made a lot of money off the yen in 2013, 2014. So he's known for currency. But even just recently, there's an, an article today uh, in Bloomberg saying that he just sold all his most of his holding in Barrick Gold, which, if you've been looking at gold, it's actually been doing very well recently. Um, so he just basically finds what he thinks will work. And one interesting thing, I read this interview with his son. Robert, 
And he said his dad will talk about all his theories about why he invests, but he knew that about half of it was BS and that a lot of it is basically when his back aches. And I've read this a few times, George Soros will say, he could tell just by the, the ache in his back, there's some sort of tension there that it's time to make a decision about, really? about an investment. <laughs> so, I thought that was huh. pretty funny. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, so, a couple quotes. Um, when he was held responsible for the role in the 1997 East Asian currency crash with his bet on the Thai bot, he said, as a market participant, I don't need to be concerned with the consequences of my actions. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and then another quote: "The financial markets generally are unpredictable, so that one has to be, so that one has to have different scenarios. The idea that you can actually predict what's going to happen contradicts my way of looking at the markets. I think this is fascinating because this is another thing that I read from all kinds of great investors. They've made a lot of money by being right, but they know that it's very, very difficult mm. to do it consistently. And many of them will say, Basically, you know, I'm smart. I have a process, but I also got pretty lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, so, fun facts, and this may not be fun, but people know George Soros as a big supporter of democratic causes. But if you look at really where most of his money goes, it goes into opening societies around the world, particularly in former communist countries. So he actually played a role in the transition from communism to capitalism back in the '90s. Um, supported a lot of NGOs in Georgia, being meaning the country where Stalin is from, not the state, mm-hmm. during the Rose Revolution. Um, supported black students during the days of apartheid. So I think George Soros is an interesting character, not only because of his investment success, but because I think you'd be hard pressed to find an investor who's had a bigger global political impact than George Soros has had. Yeah, sounds like it. All right, that was number, number three. three. All right, time for number four. And number four. As a fellow named David Swenson, and he is the chief investment officer at Yale and has been managing their endowment since 1985 um, to tremendous success. And he's done it so well that the way he invests is now called the Yale model or the endowment model, and most other endowments follow it to some degree, partially because many of the world's biggest endowments are now run by people who used to work for him. Um, so he was born. Both his grandfather and his father were chemistry professors. His mother became a Lutheran minister. He bought his first two stocks, Kodak and AT and T, with money he got his, from his church confirmation. So investing very young in life, got his undergraduate degree at Wisconsin, and then got his PhD at Yale. Um, and when he began managing the endowment, it was mostly just stocks and bonds. And his innovation, which he co-created along with a fellow named Dean Takahashi, was that. You should move into alternative investments, and for them that meant hedge funds, private equity, uh, timber, things like that. Um, they were early investors before these companies became public in some companies you may have heard of, like Google, Amazon, Facebook. Yeah, that probably turned out well for them. That turned out very well for them. So basically, his performance has been among the top performance of any endowment over the last well since he started in 1985. He offered a couple of very interesting books. One was Pioneering Portfolio Management, and that's really geared towards more people doing institutional money like, um, like endowments. But then in 2005, he came out with a book called Unconventional Success. And this was intended for the individual investor. And the main conclusion was that as he looked at the financial services industry, and particularly the mutual fund industry, he found that basically it's a big waste of money. And he ended up saying, what you really should be doing is just going with a nonprofit mutual fund company, of which there are only two. Vanguard. One being Vanguard, 
and the other one is TIAA. Oh, I didn't even know that there was a second. Okay. Yes. Um, and it was very interesting because he, I mean, he really did want to be able to give like more, I don't know about exciting, but more right. a different type of advice, but he just could not find any argument for doing anything other than going with index funds from either of those two companies. No timber, no investing in timber and tech no. startups. Well, see, and... here's what he said. You know, the part of his secret to success is that they manage some of the money, but then they go out and find the best managers they can find to do the private equity or the timber or things yeah. like that. And the average person just doesn't have access to that. Yeah. And the folks who, who do offer their services to individual investors, they're generally not top flight quality. Um, in NPR, for an NPR article um, from a year ago, this is what he recommended for the average investor, in case people are curious. So, 30% of your portfolio should be in U.S. stocks, 15 in foreign developed, so you're talking like Germany, Britain, France, 10% in emerging market stocks, 15% in U.S. Treasury inflation-protected securities, better known as TIPS, 15% in just regular treasuries, and then 15% in real estate investment trusts. So, hmm. he does think you should have something in real estate through trusts. Um, so, a couple of quotes, and this came from, he was actually on the, back in the day when The Motley Fool had an NPR show. Yeah. He was on our show. We now have the phone number. That's true. That's right. Mrs. Fool. Mrs. Fool. 866 Mrs. Fool. Um, but in an interview, he said, the mutual fund industry is not an investment management industry, it's a marketing industry. Hmm. So that was fascinating. Uh, so, a couple of fun facts about David Swenson. Um, during the credit default crisis of 2008-2009, you may have heard the term swap. He actually engineered the very first swap back when he was working for, I think it was Salman Brothers, before he went to Yale. Um, in, 19, in 2009, he was named to President Obama's uh, Economic Recovery Advisory Committee. Um, he is probably the top paid employee at Yale, mm. which wow. is interesting yeah. because Depending on what year you look at, it's like $2 million to $5 million a year, which some students have protested, because it's a lot of money, but then other people said, listen, if he went on to Wall Street, oh, he would be, be making so much money, so much money, but he chooses to stay at Yale. So that was an interesting controversy. Hmm. Um, and then, last fun fact, when he went to Yale to get his PhD, he was apparently a little turned off by the snobbery, wine tastings, and things like that. So he organized a beer tasting, hmm. and it is now an annual event that he hosts Every year at Yale. <laughs> and now beer tasting is just as snobby as wine tasting. Right. Am I right, Rick? Well, it depends how you look at it. <laughs> Keep your pinky out. All right, so those were the four. That finishes off the list of the nine investors that Bro thinks you should know. But you said you had three honorable mentions? Yes, yeah, so just three people. List? Right. So number one on that is Carl Icahn, which, um, according to an um, article by, on Forbes by Brian Rich, Made a, he made a persuasive argument that Carl Icahn is actually probably the greatest investor of all time. He's known as an activist investor, also known as a corporate raider. Like he goes in, and he tries to take over the company and kick out the CEO. Um, if I had more time, I probably would have looked more into Carl Icahn, but he's definitely someone to take a look at. Um, the second, and I'll, I'll mention, is goes to two people: the father and son team of Robert and Jeff Bruce. Ever heard of them? No. I hadn't either, but if, as you may recall from the last episode. Robert the Bruce. <laughs> Robert the Bruce, that's right. Braveheart. Braveheart yeah. is a great investor. I had asked Morningstar to send me, of mutual funds that have been run by the same people for 20 years, send me the, send me the top 25 performance wise. And number two is the Bruce Fund. 
which I had never Bruce Fund. The Bruce Fund. Good night, Bruce. Which I had never heard of before. It's an asset allocation fund, so it invests in stocks, bonds, cash, depending on um, what they see is the appropriate place to be. It's been around since 1983. The reason you probably never heard about it is they don't advertise, they don't do interviews. Um, you can only get the fund. You can't go to like Schwab or any of those platforms mm-hmm. to get them. You have to contact the company directly through its very bare bones website run out of some small town. Yeah, Robert Bruce probably Illinois. answers the phone himself <laughs> if he wants to talk to you at all. Yeah. Um, so I just thought it was funny, a great fund, and they just they're just very happy doing flying very under the radar, managing money very well. Cool. And finally, the last person is Irving Kahn. And the reason Irving Kahn is so interesting is because he died last year at the age of a hundred and nine. Wow. Continually being an investor and working at his firm. He was actually a teacher assistant to Benjamin Graham back in the twenties or thirties. <laughs> Was going to work every day, well up until he was about 106 or so. Oh, from what that's I could adorable! Yes, but what's most interesting is that he comes from a family of people who live that long. So, oh, he had three siblings that also lived to over 100. Wow! So they were studied often and interviewed. And one of his sisters, whose nickname was Happy, she would say, "Like, yeah, I smoke every day. I don't know what's going on, <laughs> basically." <laughs> um, and I think, from what I understood, there was there was a theory out there that they have a gene that makes them a little less prone to any diseases related to like dementia and any cholesterol-related diseases. Huh. But nonetheless, he could have still sat around and yeah, he stayed busy. But he worked his entire life, and that just uh, emphasizes that whole investing for the long term. <laughs> so, out of all the investors you have listed, the last. This episode and last episode, which one would you most want to like have dinner with? That's an interesting question. Um, I, well, so I have a very I have an interest in World War II history. It's one of my side interests. So George Soros would probably be up there just to know what it was like to live among the Nazis at that time, um, and then probably Ray Dalio because it's just the way he runs his his firm is so interesting. And the whole idea of if you read his principles, a lot of it is basically just suck it up. Take whatever criticism anyone gives you. It's going to make you better. Stop having your feelings hurt so much. <laughs> That's probably good advice. <laughs> uh, cool. Well, this has been a really good list. Uh, I would love for you, though, to come back uh, at some point with a list of the greatest lady investors. I will. Maybe. Sure. I know. I know this is not something that there's a lot of women in, but you know, it's a it's a it's a boys' club. Finance has been a boys' club for for most of its history. But there's got to be some women investors out there that are crushing it silently and secretly. Well, I'm sure I'm radar. sure there are, and I would I could think of a couple. But part of it was my criteria criteria was that they had to be very long term investors. Mm-hmm. And when you're looking back at Wall Street in like the you know the 50s and 60s, it was it was pretty difficult to get a good job in Wall Street if you were a woman. Yeah. I need somebody Help Not just anybody Help You know I need someone Help So this show is called Motley Fool Answers and uh, we tend to provide answers to questions that you give us um, or we just talk about whatever we want to talk about. But sometimes you guys write us with answers to our problems and what we're dealing with. Maybe not problems. So, I wanted to uh, highlight a couple listeners who wrote in with some helpful solutions for Rick and Bro. So, we're going to start with Rick. Longtime listeners to the show will remember that one of Rick's financial bugaboos was setting up his kids' 529 plans. So, one of our listeners wrote in and offered as a carrot 
although I was really pushing for sticks at this point in time, he provided the carrot of funding, putting in some money into your kids' 529 plans. Was that correct? If you would just do it. Yeah, I think I said as a joke that if anybody wants to fund my plan, that'll push me over the edge. And he actually followed through. (laughs) Did did he write you a letter? Like, how did he give you money? Well, after, uh, so that's more, that's the more recent part of the story is that, um, even though we said no thanks, but thank you for the incentive and the right. Yeah, we did. We the, did say no. That's very sweet. Yes, and it did actually push me to open the account, which was great. That's that's all I needed. But then he actually sent a letter with a check in it saying, "Here's some money for your kid's account," and he said that you have to accept it because it's not for you; it's for your kids. Oh. Oh, man. So thank you to Daniel. Um, He did. Also, when Rick emailed him back to say thank you, he wrote in uh, a little bit more about his background. Uh, He was a teacher or is a teacher of math, physics and German, and he lives in Hong Kong. But he wrote uh, some advice for everyone else who's looking to save money for school. Uh, When the three of you talk about paying for college on the air, please do help your listeners develop the sense of urgency you lacked by stressing, that was a dig at you, Rick, by stressing (laughs) that the most important contributions made to a college fund are those made before the age of three. Um, And he cranks out some numbers to show that if you assume a 15% rate of return, any money in the account by age three doubles three times by 18. That means you can pay $40,000 tuition bill with $5,000 at age three. and then, of course, if you wait, it only gets worse. So, um, anyone else out there who is suffering from the same issue Rick did of just not getting around to it, uh, get around to it because you're not, you know, Daniel's not going to send you money, but you're going to be basically sending yourself money That's true. in 18 years. Yeah. And now on to bro. Uh oh. You're looking nervous. This isn't bad. So, bro, a couple times on the show, you have mentioned that you, when you retire, you want to go to medical school. Yes, I have. And Chad wrote in, and he wants to talk you out of it. So he's right. He says, "I am writing to give you some unsolicited advice, which is the best kind of advice. <laughs> it's the kind of advice everybody wants." <laughs> I have heard you mention twice that when you retire, would you like you would like to go to medical school? I would discourage this decision. Med school is four years and then three years of residency before you are practicing in primary care. That is a large time and a financial investment. Also, your wife may not be too pleased with the time commitment. You have to work a lot on weekends, nights, and holidays. There's also very little control of your schedule, and that can be very stressful on your home life. And we do not want that, do we, bro? No. So, he suggests if you are determined to pursue your healthcare delivery dreams, I would encourage you to consider training as a physician's assistant. Training's much shorter, and you have many options once you finish. So. Yeah, and I've, and I've thought about that, and I think I may have mentioned one of the times when we talked about it being something other than a doctor, maybe a nurse, nurse practitioner, and this is a physician assistant is also a good option. It really depends on my goal and, and partially in my finances when it happens, because this will all occur after my children have gone to school, so we'll see how much money I have left after that. Yeah, well, he wants you to consider a physician's assistant, so yeah. just you know, right. even over a nurse practitioner. Yeah, well, think about it. You just want us to call you Dr. Bro Camp, don't you? That's why you're doing this. Kind of a little bit. I'm still not going to call you Dr. Bro. I'll call you Dr. Bro. How about that? That's good. I'll just call you that all the time anyway. All right. Well, thank you guys for writing in. Um, Of course, if you want to ask a question or offer advice like Chad and Daniel, you have a few options for doing it. You can post a question to us on Twitter. We're at Answers Podcast. You can join our Motley Fool Podcast Facebook group and probably get an answer there quicker than we would on the show. Uh, you can also email us at answers at fool.com. And of course, you can call us and record a message that we might play on the show. And again, that number is 866 Mrs. Fool or NPR Fool if you prefer, but I prefer 866 Mrs. Fool. All right. The show is edited goadingly 
Doesn't even make sense, but we're going to go with it. By Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.